You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are on the Collao Fancuaya. Good evening, buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Freeber. I am the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast from La Vuelta. You heard our friend Rob Hatch just say that I am on the Collado Fancuaya, the scene of today's stage finish, stage eight of the Vuelta a España. Not strictly true because for logistical reasons, I'm unsure about the network coverage up there. I stayed down at the bottom of the climb in a little village, Dan. Dan, I've just given away who our, de- who our guest is this evening. Um, it's called Entre la Puente, and well, I will get to the identity of our guest this evening. Joining me from La Masana in Andorra, it's two-time Vuelta a España stage winner, two-time Tour de France stage winner, Giro d'Italia stage winner, Liège-Bastogne-Liège winner, Il Lombardia winner, soon to be acclaimed author, cycling's most decorated podcaster, and we established the other day owner of the best wine cellar of any cycling podcast guests with the exception probably of Brian Nygaard. It's Dan Martin or as we know him here, Dan Martin. Dan, how are you? Uh, your pronunciation cracks me. But uh, yeah, good and excited to actually talk about mountain stage this time. It was a cracker, wasn't it? I mean, we didn't see all of it. We missed a fairly key couple of kilometres there when the tv pictures cut out i was slightly worried we were going to be talking about the phantom j vine yet again because having won one stage that we didn't really see well we didn't really see um him crossing the line with his arms aloft we we thought we were going to miss it all again but that wasn't the case but it was a fantastic stage wasn't it uh, it was just typical of walter and in that region as well it's such a beautiful region technical roads Obviously, the riders got really lucky today because I think that rain was actually forecast and on those descents, it's, uh, it just makes it more tricky. And then you've got that goat track up to the finish line. It's just, it's typical of Vuelta. Are you a fan, Dan, of the Cuestas de Cabras, these goat, goat paths that we've had traditionally in the Vuelta España? And we haven't got quite as many of them this, this year, but I think today's did qualify. Yeah, it's... They just, I don't know where they find them. I mean, every year they seem to, I'm not sure, I don't think they finished up there before. And every year they just seem to have a, they obviously send the scouts out to find these roads. And uh, yeah, it just adds a little flavour. It means that nobody's done any recon, right? Or, or very few riders have got the time during the season to actually recon these these climbs. And it, it just adds in that unknown. And it, uh, although obviously, yeah, with the, it looks like they had a power cut at the finish, the organisers, and with the motorbikes getting up there, the cars, the vehicles, it's a bit tricky. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it does add something. It just makes the Vuelta what it is. Well, we have talked in the past, actually, Dan, about how in Spain there is a bit of a, there's been a thriving community, particularly of, on the online forums, um, who have sort of corralled and pulled suggestions for climbs using the Vuelta and, and they've passed these on to the Vuelta organisation and, and the Vuelta organisation has been quite receptive in the past um, and and that has been a good source of these goat tracks as we said and we'll hear later in fact when we talk about tomorrow's stage about how Javier Guillen, the race director discovered tomorrow's stage finish at a cider festival um, but enough chit chat Dan, um, your first task of this evening, your first real task of this evening is going to be the stage summary time trial so take it away Rob Hatch El resumen del día a contrarreloj the stage summary time trial Dan 
Are you ready? Are you feeling confident for the resumen de la etapa, de la etapa uh, contra reloj? I think I got a feeling for it on uh, last weekend. So, yeah, we'll, um, we'll give it a crack. There's a lot to talk about, Dan. These tend to get, well, the old tail of the tapper and the new feature that's replaced it, they get difficult when we get to the mountain. So, I'm going to wish you best of luck and I'm going to start the stopwatch. You have 90 seconds, Dan Martin, from now. Right, so typical Vuelta stage, Asturias, beautiful scenery, brutal start. A lot of sprinters would have been terrified of the start today, and I'm not even sure if they all made it home, but haven't seen the results yet, but they're probably still out there. 3,700 metres climbing, up and down all day, nowhere to rest, nowhere to hide on those technical downhills. Two races, breakaway and peloton. GC guys. Once the break had gone, things calmed down. Very strong group. Looked like they were always going to go for the stage, but they seemed to have to work hard at it all day as the peloton didn't seem to, that interested in giving them a big time gap due to the GC guys involved up front. Other than that, all came down to the last climb, which we didn't see much of because it's a goat track and they had a power course at the top. Very narrow little, little climb, very steep, typical J-Vine, unbelievable ride. Two stage victories now. Made his attack, was clearly the strongest when he attacked. He didn't even need to attack. He just rode off the front, basically, away from a group of really strong climbers with Lutsenko, Pino, Marc Soler, all in good condition. And he just made, like, Jay Vine just rode away from them. GC battle, Quickstep had it in control. They really put their stamp on the race today. Remco looked like what was, yeah, really in control, rode his tempo. 10 seconds, Dan, Which was too seconds. strong for the majority of the GC guys. And status quo for the top three or four, but bigger gaps appearing behind. Well, that was, you sped up very well towards the end there. That was Roglic-esque, although well, we didn't see the traditional, the trademark Roglic sprint at the end of today's stage. Um, he actually came across, well, third um, in his little group that detached itself with Remco and Enric Mas, um, and he was just behind. But just on GC, Dan, um, excellent job, by the way, um, outstanding, getting better and better every t- with every appearance, um, and even the debut appearance was very good. But on the GC, Remco, Evenepoel still leads, uh, Enric Mas 28 seconds down, Primoz Roglic 1 minute, 1 second down, no real change there, but Carlos Rodriguez has moved up 4 places, he's now 4th on GC, Teo Gegenhart, his Ineos teammate, 5th on GC, Juan Ayuso 6th, 2 minutes, 2 seconds down, Simon Yates 7th, Joao made 8th, Jai Hindley 9th, Ben O'Connor 10th. There's a lot of movement today, Dan, and well, we'll get to who were the winners and who were the losers later in the episode in part two. But um, I also, well, I haven't done this for the last couple of days, forgotten, but we do ask our guests to give the stage a wine glass rating out of five. Um, entertainment value today, Dan, how was it? Was it a sort of, was it a tippy-tappy Beaujolais or was it a, a nice, robust Ribera del Duero? I think you overplayed my wide knowledge. I think uh, <laughs> yeah, the uh, wow, wow. give it a mark uh, out of five, Dan. Yeah, mark out of five. Um, I think it was. I, I was quite disappointed actually. I think it was quite a maybe a three. I think the nature of the stage. Everybody's a little bit scared for tomorrow, so it that, it definitely tempered the aggression a little bit. But also, we didn't see the part that we wanted to see when 
Remco dropped everybody again. So we don't even know if it was Remco that dropped everybody or somebody else attacking. So yes, uh, I think it was a great great stage. But with, when you always when you have two stages back to back, it always makes guys be a little bit more calm. I think it was a, a, a an above average mountain stage. I'm going to give it a four, but uh, my evaluation doesn't really matter. It's the guest that counts the most. Um, it's the, be- the guest that gets the big bucks, isn't that right, Dan? We'll talk about money later. We'll talk about <laughs> people receiving handsome rewards for their performances um, very shortly, in fact. But first, let's hear from a couple of the protagonists on today's stage. So now we'll hear from Teo Gagan-Hart and Remco Evanapol. Yeah, I think uh, what the team showed today is something that we, we never uh, could show. So uh, we've been running very defensively, uh, I mean in defense mode, but um, we just had to control the breakaway. It was a bit special because Lambda was in, so we just didn't want to let it grow more than four minutes. Um, so the guys did a perfect job in the, in the valleys and on the, the first uh, smaller climbs. So um, I think what we showed today is what a real GC team stands for. Yeah, well, like uh, I said to the guys, look, we put a hard pace at the bottom because also the first 3K were like uh, the least hard. I mean, we're not as hard as the final uh, three, four kilometers. Um, so we just wanted to to put a good pace, but not overpace ourselves um, because we knew that the steepest parts were coming. And uh, that's where Ilan took over. That was the, the plan that he had to pace on the, the steepest part. And then we said, OK, look, Remco, if you... You have the legs, you just go for the last 4K on, on your own and you do your own race. But then Theo took over and it was like a real attack. I mean, it was like uh, five, 600 watts for uh, a couple of seconds, maybe a minute. So uh, that was a real attack. And that's actually the point that I decided, OK, I'm just going to put the pressure on the pedals, keep pushing. Um, and that's where the race completely exploded. Really, really humid. And uh, yeah, very slippery into the climb. The twisty road was super slippery, but yeah, we just have to find the balance between being patient and your flies are undone. And uh, yeah, using the team well, but not wasting them. We have such a strong team here, so yeah, we don't have the best riders, so it's not for us to like really impose ourselves on the race. We just have to pick our moments and be smart. And it was really slippery and a bit rubbish and we tried to sit second team for a bit but it was worse to be honest because you never take the good line so the last bit we decided to just squeeze a little bit and then uh, yeah I don't know it was a good day for Carlos and I hope I'll keep getting better as the, the race goes on and stay out of trouble stay healthy not crash all those things and see what happens now for me to be honest if I'm healthy then my experience of the Grand Tours I've done is like for me personally it it gets there isn't really a word to describe it but my level doesn't well when I've been good it hasn't changed so that's what I have to aim for yeah I mean you just like I say have to stay healthy and uh, and just keep being smart and use your energy when it matters and uh, save your legs when you can Um, yeah I don't know it's strange you just kind of get to a level and for me, I seem to stay there, and certainly I would much prefer to do a day like this a hundred times than any of the, the first six stages or five stages. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España 
powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Super Sapiens was founded by Phil Sutherland, a former rider who also founded the team that is now Novo Nordisk. And all of the riders on that team are type 1 diabetics. And so monitoring their glucose levels continuously is a really critical fact of life, not just a key indicator of their performance on the bike. Over the next few episodes of our Vuelta coverage, we're going to hear from a rider on the Novo Nordisk team, Sam Brand from the Isle of Man. And recently he was at the Tour of Poland for Novo Nordisk. And on day one, he got into the break. Oh, well, what an experience. You know, um, I think last time I did Tour of Poland on stage one, I was in the breakaway as well. So, um, and coming into this race, um, I was feeling good I had good legs you know I had a lot coming up so um, I really wanted to show that and um, I'm the sort of person who who thrives from sort of that extra level of motivation being a world tour race so um, I I, I just put the power down and jumped across the break as it started to form and uh, it was it was a a fantastic day you know showing the team over Nordisk jersey showing what's possible and driving changing diabetes at the front of a world tour race was uh, just a, a, an experience like no other. It's it's incredible. Uh, still grinning year to year talking about stuff like this, you know, because it was a big day out and uh, it supported our team, our cause, and um, it was just a fantastic day. Uh, so it was a long stage. I think it was 220k stage. Uh, so I was off, off the front for about 200, 205 kilometers. So uh, from kilometer zero all the way till the sort of the last sort of, I think we got caught with maybe 12k to go. We'll hear more from Sam tomorrow. To find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. Well, Dan, not a surprise victory for Jay Vine in the sense that, well, he proved the other day how well he was climbing. Uh, He won the other day from the GC group, in fact. And, well, he's an emerging power in, in Grand Tours, isn't he? We saw last year... Without much experience, he was already getting close to winning stages, had a third place and impressed us greatly on other occasions at the Vuelta a España. And, you know, when he got away in that group of really good climbers today, I don't know about you, Dan, but I said to myself straight away that it was going to be very difficult um, for the, the peloton to, to pull those boys back because there were so many good climbers in there, Landa, Pino, uh, Taramai, and so on and so on. I think if you didn't have the... Pino's teammates in there from FDJ they uh, was it Reichenbach and Amarals and they really pushed the pace on all day and without them riding obviously I think they underestimated Jay Vine again which is strange after the other day because it's the only, otherwise I'm sure they would have attacked him before the final climb it's strange that they basically gave him an armchair ride to the finish and, and gifted him <laughs> essentially the the stage victory so they're obviously very confident in Thibaut Pino but after his, after Jay's performance the other day yeah you would it had it written especially a finish like today when it's all about power strength and right he learned to suffer on Swift right it's kind of you can <laughs> you definitely uh, you could, he could definitely put out a steady power and that strength just 
yeah, winning the stage again today. Well done. This morning in La Polla Yaviana, I did speak to Jay Vine in anticipation. Well, he was going to have another good day, and I thought the profile suited him today. And well, I was I was keen to hear first of all whether his life has changed and how it's changed in the last two days since he became a Grand Tour winner. So let's hear from Jay Vine this morning, bearing in mind what came later on in the afternoon. Here he is. Well, Jay, what's the best thing about being a Grand Tour stage winner uh, based on the last couple of days? Uh, the uh, the bonus that comes with it. <laughs> you can't say that. Well, if you're on uh, minimum wage, then yes, you can. <laughs> um, yeah, like my like my wife says that, oh, yeah, we celebrate every win, but our celebrations are we go for a four euro coffee. Like, cycling at the at the lowest levels isn't like as glamorous as people say um people think my net worth is like multiple millions of euros it's probably a minute fraction of that um in reality so yeah it uh makes life a little bit more livable for my wife and i especially since we're looking at starting a family as well so i mean people see it going that way though for you i mean they see you on a fast track to the very top of the sport I mean that'd be amazing. My 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 dreams are definitely to to be able to to do that in a in a GC position in the future, um, sort of like a, a practice run, if you will. Um, the yeah, but the the main goal was to come into this and not focus on GC from the start. You know, we we were going to lose a lot of time in the time trial, and we knew that the, the sprints in Netherlands were our one of our opportunities to, to get some results with Tim and my going for GC just confused a lot of those issues so you know we decided that you know that we're focused on the stage win it came from the GC group that wasn't the plan but we're happy it happened I was about to say the fact that it came from the GC group this wasn't a break I mean last year in the world you came close from a break a couple of times but does that is that a light bulb for you in terms of your confidence yeah, yeah, I think it is. Um, I think uh, the way the way we're riding as a team as well. It's we're not we're not defending. You know, I think thirty sixth or something on GC anymore. We're riding as like a true stage hunter um, type type gig at the moment. Um, until stage eleven, when Tim can get his next shot at a, a sprint. But uh, yeah, I think the, the the way the team is sort of come together around around this result it's it's pretty special and just lastly jay i mean a lot was made last year of your inexperience probably unfairly probably you know when you had your crash into the team car people said well of course um but how much has, has that improved over the last year i mean compared to where you were a year ago in terms of bike handling and, and so on where are you i mean the the bike handling is probably basically the same it's more the just the experience of being in the bunch more and more and more like last year when i crashed into the into the car i think that was my 22nd day on the road in europe like i'd raced outside before i'd raced amateurs in australia and raced uci in australia but i that was my 24th or something day in europe on the bike so um in a race so the the, the 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 time that you actually have to take to learn how the bunch moves and you know get around the most efficiently way possible um, I'm, I'm already feeling it in this race already that you know I'm racing further up the front of the bunch with way less energy this time um, 
So yeah, it's there's definitely a learning curve, and you, you just don't get that on the other side of the world. You know, I'd race in amateurs with 50 guys, and I'd be the strongest by far. So I could just ride wherever I wanted. If there was a split in a crosswind section, I could just bridge across. It's it's actually, you know, it's it's it has, it has hampered my development because I haven't learned the race smarts, and it's 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 taken a long time this year to learn them. What's the plan today? I think the plan today is uh, breakaway. Um, I think guys are going to be trying to get satellite riders up the road, and if I can sneak into a move without using too much energy, that's great. Um, Otherwise, I think uh, I think Remco's after a stage win. So Dan, that was Jay Vine. Well, telling us that life as a well third year pro he is now, uh, Alpes in Phoenix. It's not all glamour, and in fact, his idea of a celebration until a couple of days ago, anyway, was a four euro cappuccino. Um, he lives in Andorra, doesn't he? Uh, Does he live in Andorra? I, I think he's at the going, Andorra, the good, Yes. But uh, as, he said he moved to Girona the other day. I saw in a in a piece. But I mean, yeah, oh, he's, okay. Both places probably, you know where. Is that the going rate for cappuccino in Girona and Andorra? Four euros? <laughs> Not really. No, it's more Spanish prices. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, like maybe he's talking about being at a stage race. You know, because you don't really get a that's that's the problem with winning a stage mid tour. You don't have a chance to celebrate because it's right back at it the next day. Next day. I mean, it was interesting there, him talking about his bonuses and, and how important they were. I mean, the other day he paid tribute to his wife and he talked about how they'd sort of sold up in Australia and they'd moved to Europe to pursue this dream. I was a little bit surprised to, to hear him sort of suggest that he was still on quite a low salary because he did actually sign a contract extension in August 2021. So... Um, he now this is his second contract now with Alpes in Phoenix I would have thought the second one would have been considerably more valuable than the first one um, he's contracted to that team now until 2023 but he's certainly someone who well he's on a fast track isn't he Dan and uh, I think well, he, we heard him there talk about his sort of GC ambitions in the future and what he's already improved in the last year I think uh, that the consensus in the World Tour will be that this is a guy who, who can ultimately become uh, a real GC contender wouldn't you agree? Uh, it depends I mean he doesn't really fit the typical GC rider morphology as far, even a climber's morphology he's, he's a bigger guy he's uh, obviously quite well built and yeah it, it's very different doing a riding a grand tour the way he's riding and he's obviously got the the advantage of obviously he's prepared his whole season around this race and the uh, a lot of the guys but as you say he won that for the GC group the other day so he's clearly climbing he's one of the best he's one of if not the best climber in the race at the moment so but it also I mean the pressure of being a team leader and a GC rider it's completely different and having the mental side of racing day in day out and it isn't just that it's because obviously with his background that's why it's when you learn well when he's obviously earned his contract through racing on Zwift and he's he's clearly got some kind of peloton skills to be able to win two stages of the welter but you need to be able to really do it all as a GC rider and obviously I didn't personally start riding GC in Grand Tours till I was yeah older than he than Jay Ryan is now so it's uh, it is something that he can definitely learn in the right environment and perhaps I mean we don't know 
the ins and outs of his contract at all because it's obviously something that's not really spoken of in pro cycling. But he's uh, he's maybe hinting at a, a pay rise or a, a big t- one of the bigger teams to come hunting for him uh, with those comments about uh, the financial situation. I mean, you sort of cracked that, as you say, Dan, later in your career. Um, how difficult was that process of sort of switching your mindset? And also, I guess, to a certain extent, you switched things in your training and your preparation as well to become more of a GC rider. Yeah, that's, I mean, we moved to Andorra and suddenly we, I became a real Grand Tour climber. Yeah, it's just that climbing day in, day out, it's, it's a different type of training. It's, you need to t- take away that one-off performance, that one-off explosiveness to to be able to build on the stamina that you need to perform over three weeks but it's more the mental challenge as well of, of that consistency and just keeping concentrated day in day every kilometer for 3,000 kilometers so it's something I was still working at towards the end of my career because even tactically the you cannot afford to make any mistake during a grand tour and if not it can be costly and that stress and and concentration that's required it's it's really it's something that's not really understood well outside of the sport and even within the sport unless you've tried to ride a grand tour gc it's uh yeah it's it's really a challenge that uh it's it's difficult to comprehend i mean did you feel that it sort of spilled over into your everyday life as well i mean people talk about um, Grand Tour riders being on a knife edge the whole time, the whole year, in fact, because everything you do, whether it's two months out, three months out, four months out, it, it feeds in, has an effect um, on those. Well, let's face it, there are only three choices for as far as big goals are concerned in the year. It's either the Giro, either the Tour, or the Vuelta. And you can you can reset if something goes wrong. You can say, okay, I'm not going to do the Tour now. I'm going to do the Vuelta. But there's so much riding on every moment really every day every week um did you find that 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 sort of stress spilled over into your everyday life i think it's just the normal stress of being a pro cyclist you do worry about getting sick all the time or yeah worry about if if not going out because it's pouring rain or even snowing in my situation and or it's if that could cost you later down the line it's that i think anxiety almost is a good way of putting it it's uh it, it is a daily it's a 24-7 job. Uh, even though you only spend, obviously, between two and six hours down the bike, you you are thinking about those objectives all year round, 365, like, every day, 24-7. So it's, it, that is, but it's also easy, well, not easy, but very important to take away that, that to take away that stress and, and try and, I think that's what beats up a lot of riders. That's where you see riders, often who have one successful grand tour and suddenly they crumble they don't perform again and they keep i mean eric mass this is his first really good grand tour since well he's he's been there or thereabouts but it's the first time we've really seen him at the heights that he was when when was the last grand tour that he was po- he, he, well, he was on the podium in, last uh, year he, he was, was on the podium. yeah yeah he was, he was second last year but okay. um yeah he's had a few he's he's had a sort of checkered recent passing grand tours yeah I mean, I was just wondering, Dan, you know, we were talking about, well, we were talking about finances and being pragmatic. Um, it could also, it can also be a pragmatic choice, can't it? Um, as someone in Jay Vine's position, he can be a very effective stage hunter for the next few years, but financially that might not be as rewarding as being someone who, who sells themselves and he's sold probably by their agent as someone who could 
potentially crack a, a, a top five in Grand Tours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, there's um, think of GC riding a Grand Tour is obviously it just adds on. Yeah, so much to your uh, to your, your value. It's I don't I'm not even sure why. Even as a classics rider, it's it's I think people see it almost as a risk. Whereas if you're a Grand Tour rider, it's showing it's showing that strength over three weeks that can yeah it it can really the teams pay for that. I don't and it's every team almost needs its Grand Tour riders or and one two or three of them now. So if you can prove that you're you can sustain the effort over three weeks, yeah, your your contract value goes goes up and up, and that that's why so many riders focus on the Tour de France. It's worth risking going all in for the Tour de France and and trying to get a top ten because if you can make it into that top ten, then yeah, your your value in the in the eyes of the cycling teams, it's uh, it, it just goes up. Well, Dan, we're talking about GC and Jay Vine and whether that's something that is on his horizon. Let's now switch our focus and talk about the GC. Before we do, we haven't had a dose of the trademark Primoz Roglic loquacity for a few days. Loquaciousness, loquacity, not sure which. Um, So let's do that now. Let's have our first instalment for a few days of the Daily Rog. Take it away, Rob, first. Asturias uh, is expecting uh, yes uh, rampas at the end, but uh, hoping to have the legs to, to come over them. Uh. Uh, waiting to get my legs. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, we have to see how the race will develop. Definitely, it's, uh, it will be a hard start from from uh, from the very uh, start, starting uphill. And uh, yeah, then we we have to, to see how it goes. And uh, yeah, anyway, at the end, hoping to to, to be there with the uh, with the fastest guys. So there was Primoz Roglic this morning, um, as expansive as ever. And then, well, we're introducing a new feature for as long as this this Vuelta a España is a bit of a head-to-head battle between Remco Vanderpool and uh, Primoz Roglic. Different interview styles, different sort of countenance at the moment. Um, Remco Vanderpool is very sprightly, very exuberant. Um, and let's have our first ever daily Remco. Let's hear from him this morning. El Diario Remco. The Daily Remco. I expect also a team like Movistar, they are really known for parkourses like this, so uh, I hope they put a hard pace already on the climbs before, that it's uh, it's better than having a walk in the park towards the last climb, uh, but it's never going to be a walk in the park on, on the stage like today. Okay, you seem remarkably relaxed, as though you're enjoying this whole experience. I think it's a jersey. Being the jersey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Dan, uh, nothing between Primoz Roglic and Remco Evenepoel today. I mean, I've got I've jotted a few notes down, sort of who had a good day, who had a bad day. I've got Remco and, and Rob, Roglic both having a good day today, as well as Carlos Rodriguez, um, Emric Mas, and Simon Yates. I've also got Teo Gegenhart as having a good day. Would you agree with all of those? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, uh, I think Remco is obviously going to be the happier. He's one day closer to that time trial. I mean, that time that time trial at the day after the rest day is going to be uh, is going to be crucial because if he has a good day there, he can take out, he can extend his lead. And yeah, I'd agree that 
there's a lot of there wasn't that much movement considering the start and finish but it all adds up and it's really a, a gauge of form generally in a Grand Tour you're not going to see guys improving massively although obviously Roglic can change that because he claims not to have trained much since the Tour so he, we can see him improving improving before Madrid but uh, other than that I think normally the status quo that's established in this first week will continue on the subsequent mountain stages so it's uh, yeah I think it's uh, but I think what is exciting is to see the number of teams with teammates with multiple riders in that top 10 top 15 who can now go on like be aggressive and put pressure on Rimco so that's some, definitely something they would have been worried about on these these types of days today and tomorrow that if teams really want to go on the break early they, they don't really have a group that perhaps don't have the team to uh, to really control the race I was a little bit worried about Roglic uh, today well this morning when he talked about just trying to be with the best guys that sounded like a quite a defensive statement from him um, again you can't read too much into what Primoz Roglic says not least because he doesn't really say very much but he was quite a long way back in that group um, the sort of hostilities really started with about 5k to go when the the final climb became really steep but until that point it was relatively big that group and Primoz Roglic was sort of in the belly of it um, which he wasn't on Remco's shoulder he didn't look primed for an attack and, and I was slightly concerned that he wasn't on a good day but it's a sort of gritty performance from Roglic at, at this point isn't it um, he's holding on I think in the hope and expectation maybe that he is going to get better in this Vuelta España yeah of course that would be the hope for him and uh, obviously he still finished right with, up there with Remco put time into the contenders so yeah he's not badly placed he's just probably hoping to get to the rest day and then he can reset and really uh, come out fighting in the final the, the final war still two weeks ago isn't it it is indeed Dan and just a couple of the other names we mentioned Enric Mass. I mean it was the same it was a, a, an action replay really of what we saw the other day from Enric Mass, just um, sticking to Remco's wheel and trying to come round him in the last 500 metres which I'm sure went down like a lead balloon and um, and Simon Yates as well it's similarly to similar to Roglic I think he probably feels that he can, he can get better and he will hope that that uh, Remco weakens and uh, he's still very much in the fight isn't he I know he's your tip to win is he still your tip to win this Vuelta España I, I think with the time for coming up now and how his form is going maybe I want to change my uh, <laughs> change my tip you know but yeah I expected him to come out swimming swinging in this first week uh, with the way his condition was coming into the, the Vuelta uh, I really thought that he would uh, he'd be there, but he's got experience. He's he's playing perhaps playing the long game, but obviously he's not. Uh, he just doesn't quite have the same climbing legs as those as Remco Roglic and and Mass at the moment. So, but it's as you said, this Walter can be really unpredictable because potentially we're going to have a Remco Evenepoel with a lot large lead after the time trial and not the strongest team so who knows what can happen Dan it was a really bad day today for Pavel Sivakov who's looked very good so far in the Vuelta España and and that weakens Ineos's hand considerably um Teo Gegenhart as we said had a pretty good day he limited his losses and Carlos Rodriguez was one of the stars of the show um he's only one minute and 47 seconds down on general classification he's now um in fourth place and there'll be a lot of excitement here in Spain about 
about that performance, I'm sure. But um, it's been a mixed bag, hasn't it, for Ineos? Carapaz again lost. Um, well, he lost more time today, and he. I think you could you can say definitively that he's not going to win the Vuelta España or even really be a huge factor in the general classification. But how do you see them now with well, Ro- Ro- sorry, with Rodriguez um, fourth? Uh, Teo in fifth just behind just a few seconds behind uh, Carlos Rodriguez and then Carapaz and Sivakov now well down the general classification yeah I think obviously Carapaz was their their go-to going into the race he's the one that they would have expected to be aggressive Teo he's not one that's going to be aggressive in the mountains and take back time on the guys so um and Carlos Rodriguez, I mean, he's a he's a young rider. He, he's, he's his first Grand Tour, I think. So he's um, yep. yeah, he's a big unknown. Obviously, it doesn't mean anything now to be twenty one years old and it's your first Grand Tour because we've seen so many young guys win win Grand Tours at that age lately. But uh, but but yeah, it's I mean, we'll they have to be aggressive uh, if they want to get something out of this race now and. Or did they switch their tactics to stage stage hunting? That's that's the big question. Well, as Seb Piquet, the voice of race radio, always says on the cycling podcast, shoot, shoot à l'arrière du peloton. Um, we have had a bit of a mishap, a, a, a fall, a crash uh, yesterday. I joined you from a place called Fistierna, and uh, yesterday's guest at night, Nico Van Looy, we joked about the fact that the origin of the name, well, it was a, a cistern, and it was raining pretty heavily. It's also raining pretty heavily in La Masana in Andorra, so much so that Dan Martin's basement um, has been flooded, causing him to, well, he's DNF'd on this podcast. Poor old Dan. Um, he's, as we speak, down in the basement with a shovel, um, or some other implement trying to clear the water away. So hopefully we'll see him again at some, we'll hear from him again at um, another point later in the Vuelta. But I have been joined again by Nico Van Looy, who did join us last night, um, formerly of Meta 2000, Las Provincias, uh, Ciclo 21. And, well, yesterday we talked a lot about Spanish cycling. We talked a lot about Juan Ayuso. And we also talked about Sky's prodigy, Carlos Rodriguez and Nico. It was a pretty good day for Carlos in particular, wasn't it? Yeah, impressive day, wasn't it? He was with the best guys till the very end. Uh, he only lost a couple of seconds today. I think it was 13 at the end, so um, 13 seconds. So I think uh, in that in that battle between him uh, himself and, uh, and Ayuso, He's now winning the the race of the uh, Spanish eras of uh, of the, the the golden generation, which is ending now with uh, with uh, Valverde's last Vuelta. So uh, I guess it's a big day for him, also because now he's he's more or less the leader of Team Ineos uh, with Teo, of course. But uh, he's gaining that that's uh, that status inside the team. Which will be uh, very important for him, I guess, uh, also in this world, but also for the future. Well, Nico, we're going to talk about Alejandro Valverde in tonight's instalment of this. El ritmo de la vuelta, the rhythm of the vuelta. 
This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, our daily deep dive into a vortex of cheesy pop music and vintage Vuelta action, remembering the official songs of the race and the additions to which they provided the soundtrack. Nico, tonight we're going back to 2009. The song is Merezco by Zahara. Uh, the Andalusian singer-songwriter, also known as Mar- Maria Zahara Gordia Campos. She was 26 when the song was recorded and then released on her first studio album, the catchily titled La Fabulosa Historia de la Chica que Perdió el Avión. The, fa- the fabulous story of the girl who missed the plane. Um, fabulous, fabulous title indeed. Now, Nico, the 2009 Vuelta was significant well for our other guest tonight's um, debut in the Vuelta, but it was also last. It was also the last Vuelta for what, Nico? Something quite significant in the Vuelta and in the general classification. What was it? The, the last time we saw something. Uh, the Mayotte. The Mayotte. Oh, the, the golden one. The golden, the, the golden jersey, one. which I yeah, quite liked. Yeah. Did you, Nico? I quite. I thought it was quite fetching. It was one of those um, bets that the Vuelta did in the past to be different than the Tour de France instead of being the yellow jersey, having that golden jersey. And I think it was a nice nice way of having the yellow color somehow in, in a different way. But um, I think because of all what the red means in Spain, the national uh, football team color as well, I think this one, the red one, is the one that's going to be for many, many years to come. I would agree with you. Um, that year's race, the 2009 race, started in Assen in the Netherlands, which made it only the second foreign Gran Salida in the Vuelta's history, the first having been from Lisbon in 1997. Fabian Cancellara took the first golden jersey in the Netherlands and wore it for much of the first week until... Who, Nico, do you, can you remember, took it on the Alto de Aitana, near, not too far from where you are now, on stage eight? Can you remember? Took it for one day? Uh, I'd say it was Evans. exactly. Evans himself was dislodged the very next day when Alejandro Valverde dropped him on the Zoret de Cati, climb near Alicante. Valverde even racing the Vuelta was seen by some as an act of defiance, the Italian Olympic Committee having banned him from competing within their borders in April due to DNA evidence linking him to Operación Puerto. The UCI's president, Pat McQuaid, had said in response to those sanctions, this is for the moment an Italian affair under Italian law. The UCI will have to wait until the process finishes to see how we can proceed. Indeed, the following May, the Court of Arbitration for Sport would agree that Valverde's ban should be extended to the rest of the world as per a case brought by the UCI and WADA. Having taken the lead at the 2009 Vuelta, Valverde seemed impervious to any sense of impending doom but was pushed all the way by Samuel Sanchez, who drew within a minute of El Bala in the penultimate day time trial. Sanchez, who incidentally has a statue dedicated to him in his native Oviedo, where we were this morning. Like Woody Allen, I should add. He's got a statue in Oviedo as well. I saw that this morning. Um, I saw Samuel Sanchez today. He was from Oviedo and he was working for Spanish TV today. Was he not, Nico? Yeah, he was. He was uh, giving his uh, insight in the uh, after-stage uh, program on the Spanish TV, yeah. 
Now, we could talk for hours about Alejandro Valverde and his legacy and the difference between the way he's received and the way he's regarded in Spain versus the rest of the world. Um, that was just a reminder to, to me. I'd forgotten just how contentious the circumstances around that well-to-win were. I mean, that was his only Grand Tour victory, and it came at, at the moment where, well, the, the, the pro Alejandro Valverdes and the, those who were of the firm opinion that he shouldn't be allowed to race. They were really, well, that sort of division was really opening up at that point. Um, but it is curious, isn't it, Nico? I mean, today um, at the start, he got a fantastic ovation. He gets a fantastic ovation um, every day. He's still regarded as a bit of a home hero. Yet um, it's, uh, there, there are plenty of people who believe perhaps justifiably, legitimately, that he should never really have been forgiven because he never really showed much contrition himself for what occurred in 2006 and before that. Yeah, but the thing here is, uh, as many of the other riders uh, trapped in the Operación Puerto back in the days, uh, he never tested positive uh, on any uh, drug test. He was, find, he was found uh, guilty uh, on evidence, and there was plenty of evidence that he was working for, uh, with Eufemiano, Fuentes, and all that stuff. But he always claimed that he never took any uh, forbidden substance. Uh, I, I mean, the evidence was was pretty clear and pretty yeah, explicit DNA about him having there, used yeah. having used um, forbidden methods at that time. Yes, of course, uh, but. If he's, he's sticking to his story, and uh, regardless of the evidence, and I can understand the people that still loves him, and I can understand the people that hate him. Uh, but in the meanwhile, he's he came back from that uh, from that uh, period, and uh, he's keep he's he kept winning till the till this very season. So. Uh, I'm trying not to be. I, I, I mean, I like him. I have to. I have to be honest. I, I like the guy. I like him. Uh, I, I've I've enjoyed all these years uh, watching him uh, on the ra- in the races, uh, speaking with him. I, I really like the guy. So I, I can't. I can't be neutral on this. Yeah, I think. I think that mu- that does muddy the waters, particularly when you speak to people who have ridden with him in the peloton. I was curious to get Dan's view on this because. Um, Dan spent many years in the peloton riding, well, competing for the same races as Valverde. And what you often hear from his contemporaries is that he's a nice guy and he's, um, he's someone who has time for everyone. He's not arrogant in the way he behaves in the peloton or indeed with the media. And that makes judgments a little bit more sort of, a, um, I suppose, ambivalent about him. Um, but it is a tricky one. And that's, I suppose, well, we will discuss this further later on in the world, so particularly as the the sort of sentimental the tributes and the homages, they ramp up, which I'm sure they will, particularly in a few days when we go down to um, Murcia and yeah. his region. Yeah, let, let me just add to that. I mean, I, I, I firmly believe he had to be uh, put, uh, I think it was two years his, uh, his sanction, wasn't it? Uh, I think that was fair enough because there was evidence enough that, uh, to, do that to do that, of course. But if we believe that sanctions are made to to make riders or sportsmen uh, reflect on what they've done, uh, he has he had the right to come back. And uh, as you said, 
the image of him inside the peloton. I think the best image that you can that, that reflects that is when he won his uh, world title. I think there was no one there. I mean, rivals uh, in the peloton that wasn't happy for him. Even the second guy, the, the guy who came second, was somehow happy for him. So uh, I think that 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 really summarized the uh, uh, the the Valverde hype in the peloton. Nico, let's talk now about another rider at this Vuelta a España who I think everyone would agree is moving towards the twilight of his career and he's not having the best Vuelta a España. So it's time for today's Encuentro del Día. Take it away, Rob Hatch. El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. Chris Froome's Vuelta a España didn't start... Uh, in the way he had wanted. Well, you can trace the, his difficulties at this Vuelta España back to the Tour de France, in fact, when he tested positive for COVID and had to pull out of the race in Lourdes. This morning, I spoke to him about those struggles and, well, what he hopes for from the rest of the race. <laughs> well, Chris, am I right in thinking that your Vuelta started badly, more or less? Is that sort of set the tone a little bit? Yeah, 100%, 100%. So, I, was, I mean, I was, I, was, I was only symptomatic for probably best part of 10 days, uh, but it, it definitely affected my preparation coming into the Volta Espana. I, when I got back on the bike again after, uh, after the symptoms had cleared, I, I just felt I had nothing. I, I, I just really struggling to, 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 to hit, hit the numbers that I needed to hit, and um, dealing with a lot of fatigue as well, just residual fatigue. So it definitely affected my preparation coming in here. Um, I knew that coming into this Volta, I'd have to ride into it, take the first week almost as, almost looking at it as, as training and uh, hoping that the second second half of the Volta, I'll, I'll start to find my legs. So still, still waiting to see if that's going to be uh, the case. But uh, for now... Uh, just just getting through the stages best I can and, and helping the team with uh, with their goals along the way. A lot of guys who have had COVID have talked about this and they've described different feelings and different effects on their kind of physiology. I mean, do you still feel that there's a bit of it there and how does it manifest itself? Is it, do you see it in your heart rate? Do you see it in your watts? Do you see it in well, just the way you feel after stages? There's definitely been some very strange heart rate readings for me uh, that... that uh, that I've been keeping an eye on. <laughs> um, um, yeah, go, going higher than I would uh, would have seen previously. Um, it's something, yeah, something we're monitoring closely, and um, it seems to have settled now into to a more uh, predictable <laughs> range. Um, but given uh, given obviously the body's just just uh, fought quite a hard virus uh, it's uh, i think it's it's safe to say at the moment it, 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 it it's worth just not not pulling out all the stops and and uh, going too deep just yet um uh, until until the body's feeling better and you wanted this to be well this was a big goal for you wasn't it chris the, the world it, it was it was yeah i mean it was my my big goal of the season actually i was really hoping uh, as as was the case to build through the tour which which i felt was on track but uh yeah it, it really really did derail me a little bit uh coming into this welter so 
with your crystal ball out, what do you think is going to happen in your welter over the next 10 days or so? What, well, what's the best case scenario anyway? Best case scenario is that uh, get through the next couple of days to the rest day and uh, start feeling better in the second part of the race and get more, more involved in the breakaways, uh, maybe go stage hunting. But um, I'm going to have to play that one by ear. As it is at the moment, that's, <laughs> that's just not possible. Uh, so I'm, I'm helping my teammates much, as, as best I can and uh, helping the team to, to target individual uh, stages. And just lastly, Chris, I mean, you've had so many setbacks the last couple of years, so many things to deal with. I mean, how is morale? Yeah, good, good. I mean, um, this year I got, I got a really big boost from, from seeing where I could get to at the Tour de France. Um, I feel as if uh, I've made a lot of progress and that, that's, that's not going to go away for the next season. So I'm going to be able to build on that now over the winter and uh, hopefully start the year off um, in, in, in a better way. Nico, it's tough, isn't it, not to sympathise with Chris Froome to, uh, to a certain degree. Uh, every time he seems to see some light at the end of the tunnel, then the kind of clouds... We'll close in again and well he has to deal with more adversity yeah I mean I think it's impossible not to love Chris Froome for all what he has been in cycling uh, for how he has treated all of us uh, during his uh, best years or uh, how he how he has always been with the fans and uh, especially now speaking about the world España all what he has given to the world España we can't forget we never should forget that when he was winning one tour after the other, where many, many other riders would say, okay, my year is done, I've done all my homework, I can go and have a rest. He always committed to the Vuelta España, he always came to the Vuelta España and fought for the Vuelta España to the, to the very end. So uh, I think it's pretty, pretty unfair with him, all what happened since that nasty crash some years ago. Um, because his legacy... I, I really hope he, he can win a stage this year in the Vuelta or have a, a good year next year, which might be his final year. I don't know. But I, I, I really wouldn't like him to have this, uh, this three, four final years without any, any, any good moment, let's say so. Like he's, he's been doing three, four more uh, years too much in his career. I think he deserves one one last big moment, one last dance. Let's let's put it that way. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. You can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. Now, occasionally, Science in Sport run even more generous discounts than the cycling podcast one. And I think if you're in the UK at the moment to mark the British Bank holiday weekend, there's 30% off everything. Uh, but at all other times, SISCP25 will give you 25% off. So you can fuel for your ride, which is something I'm preparing to do because tomorrow, while Daniel's over there in Spain working hard, I'm going for a bike ride, which has been planned 
planned by a friend of mine. It's not far short of 120 kilometers, and of the five or six of us, I suspect that I may well be the first one to show signs of wear and tear because they're all pretty fast riders. So I want to make sure that I'm well fueled up and I don't run out of energy all of a sudden. So I'm getting my science in sport bidons ready. I'm gonna take beta fuel to keep myself topped up with carbohydrate through the ride. I'll take a couple of energy gels and I'll perhaps take a caffeine gel for the end of the ride. We are actually stopping for a proper lunch stop halfway round, so we'll get some uh, get some real food as well, but I want to make sure that uh, I keep my energy levels consistent through the ride, so the gels and the energy bakes will come in very handy. Only strawberry flavor left in my little stash of Science and Sport products. Um, the tiramisu no longer on the website, almost as if it was a mirage, but I'm sure they'll be back at some point, at least I hope so. Anyway, back to Spain. I'll update you on my bike ride tomorrow. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. So, Nico, last night, um, la cena de ayer, I had some pote asturiano de berzas. You ever had that before? It's a, what is it? A cabbage kind of cabbage soup with again um, unidentified pieces of meat in, which again I try to avoid. Uh, I, I would never have that at night, but yeah, I've, I've tasted that uh, in the past. You would never have it at night. Why not? Uh, too heavy for me, I think. Uh, I like more like light uh, suppers, and uh, when I have to eat uh, properly, I, I do it. Uh, you know, in nuestra comida, almuerzo. You you southern softies down there yeah. on the Costa Blanca. Yeah, yeah. Um, we also had a lovely bottle of um, Mencia from Bierzo, which was which was outstanding. Um, but Nico, moving on, moving on to tomorrow. We're still in Asturias, are we not? And it falls to you to tell us what we've got coming on this. Well, the second half of this double header in the Asturian mountains. First of all, the weather forecast is, uh, is predicting sun and uh, a hot day. So uh, that will be the first thing to note on an Asturian uh, uh, stage. Uh, the, the stage itself uh, starts in Villa Viciosa, more or less on the sea level, uh, and it ends in Les Praeres Nava. That's the second time this uh, summit will be uh, in the Vuelta España. First time was back in 2018. And then Simon Yates won there and uh, took the, his uh, leadership to the very end of the Vuelta. So statistically, the guy who comes out from Les Paeres Nava as uh, the leader is the guy that uh, wins the Vuelta España at the end. Before arriving there, we have 171 kilometers with uh, another four climbs, uh, one, uh, one cate uh, first category climb. To, uh, another one, uh, second category climb, and uh, three and two, uh, three, thir three category climbs. So, uh, like today, uh, a stage with no moment to rest, a stage uh, where uh, anything can happen actually, and a stage where we will see the best guys uh, fighting for uh, for the finish in a very, very, very steep and short final climb. It does look a lot like today's profile, doesn't it, Nico? Similar stage. Yeah, yeah, it's a typical Asturian uh, stage. The only thing I think today's, uh, today's finish, uh, today's uh, last summit, was a little bit harder in 
terms of distance, it was a longer climb. Uh, this one is more typical La Vuelta style in the last years, like a big, uh, big wall at the end. Uh, there's people who love it, people who doesn't like it, but it's that kind of, uh, of, of, of uh, mountain finish. Just incidentally, I alluded to this earlier, but Les Praeres, the climb, was discovered apparently when Javier Guillén went to a uh, cider festival in Nava, which is the town, I think it's the town at the bottom of the climb, isn't it, Nico? And um, he got talking, I think, to some members of the, the local cycling club, the Navastur um, Cycling Club, and it's sure enough did feature in the race in 2018 there were quite a number of riders there in that edition and particularly that day you mentioned when Simon Yates won who will also be riding tomorrow Enric Mas was there Alejandro Valverde uh, Rigoberto Uran they were all competing for victory Superman Lopez who's kept a very low profile and has been pretty disappointing in this Vuelta at España so far but they will all be familiar with the climb I'm not sure I haven't heard too much about what state the road is in because last time certainly the last couple of hundred meters were, were kind of gravel compacted gravel and i'm not sure w- what if any effect that had on the racing itself but as you said nico it was certainly a climb that simon yates enjoyed last time um nico just looking ahead um do you do you have you revised your view of remco vainapol at all um i know you were i think you were in the pro remco camp before the Vuelta a España or after the first stage when we when we got together with Dan Martin then um, are you more and more confident of his ability and his chances in this Vuelta a España well yeah as long as long as he's the leader and there's each day there's one day less to arrive to Madrid you have to be more confident aren't you but I think I think if uh, if he gets uh, if he gets a good stage tomorrow, like he did today, he doesn't lose time with the with the big guys in the um, in, in the last climb. And um, keeping in mind that the next stage on uh, Tuesday will be a time trial, thirty kilometer time trial, he should win time over Enrique there. Uh, and even Ro- and even Roglic, I I expect that, personally, yeah, I think he'll that, take a little bit of time off Roglic. Yeah, that's what I wanna. That's what I doubt the most, but I think I think he should w- win sometime o- over Roglic. I think the, the big answer will be that time trial. Once he, if he gets uh, over that time trial, still in the lead, and he gets uh, over uh, Sierra Nevada, some uh, I think it's two or three days later, uh, then then he will have big, very big chances to win the Vuelta España. Well, Nico, we'll see tomorrow how he gets on. That just about concludes tonight's entertainment. Um, there have been floods, there have been um, stoppages, there have been well, there's been all sorts of adversity to deal with, but we have dealt with it, I, I think, and I hope. Um, I did promise yesterday that we would hear from Remco Venepol's babysitter, one-time babysitter, who also happens to be his masa or his swanya um, at Quickstep. A bit of a coincidence, actually. Um, he wasn't brought to the team by, um, by Remco, but... Um, this gentleman has known the Evenepoel family for many, many years, as we're about to find out. His name is David Hermons, and, well, he, he will play us out tonight. But in the meantime, Nico, I'm going to thank you for stepping in um, when I had to make a 
tactical substitution halfway through the episode and we'll we will be hearing from you and possibly seeing you in alicante next week so thank you nico and have a lovely evening thank you for having me it's been a pleasure bye-bye uh, i know him already when he's born uh his, his parents is uh good friends of me his, his mother and his father already to more than 20 years so uh, I see all the changes from footballist to to, uh, to cyclist and yeah with the results uh, we see it now when he was uh, one years old he was uh, sometimes in my house for sleep when the parents uh, going to a party then he was uh, in my with me and my wife uh, he was he was uh, a special he was always a special child i have uh, watching sometimes to yeah for uh, in the football when he play uh, in ps3 and uh, Anderlecht. He, he played left left back left, left back, wing left back yeah, yeah was he fast or strong or skillful fast and strong okay, okay. yeah 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 and then when his father told you or you heard that he was starting to race his bicycle can you remember what you thought yeah on an evening he called me for a for say yeah uh, listen now uh, he stopped with uh, with football and he go he want to to go cycling and we uh, say yes okay uh, we will do it and uh, but he said to me this this day he take my bike and he uh, he have a, he make a loop from uh, 80 kilometer with an average of uh, 30. So I say directly, yeah, maybe <laughs> start with cycling directly because he have for me he have a special uh, yeah special motor. And now you are his master. Um, I hear that on the massage table he, he enjoys music. Sometimes he uh, it's hardcore music. Hardcore rap, hardcore rock, hardcore dance music, dance, what kind? Hardcore dance music, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or uh, like Tomorrowland in Belgium, he likes it also. Do you worry about Remco sometimes because uh, of the, all of the pressure and all of the attention? Yeah, for him it's not so not so easy. Yeah. It's uh, when he come... Uh, come outside when he go to the pub when he go to the shop it's always uh, everybody wants the picture and signature so for him it's not so easy but it's okay for uh, yeah it's okay for the moment the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by richard moore daniel freeb and lionel burney Yeah.
Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.